Baptism is not a divine insurance policy. Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Third Sunday in Advent, December 12, 2021, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. After no Israelite prophets for more than 400 years, John the Baptist's appearance heralded the coming of the Messiah. Many went out to the wilderness to drink in John's words and be baptized by him. But John called out those who came with selfish and shallow intentions. Reverend Kevin Cable echoes John's message and reminds us that salvation is not inherited, baptism isn't a divine insurance policy, and we prove our repentance by our good works. Friends, before we continue, we thank you for listening. As the pandemic continues, the return of tourists to Israel has been delayed yet again. Our ministry funding usually comes through the generosity of visitors to the church, guest houses, museum, and those traveling with Shoresh study tours. As we continue to pray for the end of the pandemic, we ask you to remember us in your prayers and in your charitable giving. Stay connected with us through Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website, ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Now, Canon Daryl Fenton will open us in a word of prayer. And as many of you know, there's a, uh, a prayer for every, every Sunday of the year and many more in the Anglican prayer book. Some of them are especially appropriate, so I'm asking you bow with me before we turn to God's word. O Lord Jesus Christ, you sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Grant that the ministers and stewards of your mysteries may likewise make ready your way by turning the hearts of the disobedient toward the wisdom of the just, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found a people acceptable in your sight. For with the Father and the Holy Spirit you live and reign, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we turn to the reading of God's word. The first reading is from Zephaniah, chapter 3, starting with verse 14. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
Our second reading is taken from the Psalms, Psalm 85. And uh, you should remember that the Psalms, of course, are the hymn book of Israel. So as I read, you might uh, turn your own thoughts and heart towards the Lord. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You turned aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him. That his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our Bible reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. I will read in English, then in Arabic. John said to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threat or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectations, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn in un with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. 
وكان يقول للجموع التي تخرج إليه لتعتمد عن يده يا أولاد الأفاعي من أراكم سبيل الهرب من الغضب الآتي فاثمروا إذا ثمرا يدل على توبتكم ولا تعللوا النفس قائلين إن أبانا هو إبراهيم فإني أقول لكم إن الله قادر على أن يخرج من هذه الحجارة أبناء لإبراهيم ها هي الفأس على أصول الشجر فكل شجرة لا تثمر ثمرا طيبا تقطع وتلقى في النار فسأله الجموع ماذا نعمل فأجابهم من كان عنده قميصان فليقسمهما بينه وبين من لا قميص له ومن كان عنده طعام فليعمل كذلك وأتى إليه أيضا بعض الجبات ليعتمدوا فقالوا له يا معلم ماذا نعمل فقال لهم لا تجبوا أكثر مما فرض لكم وسأله أيضا بعض الجنود ونحن ماذا نعمل فقال لهم لا تتحاملوا على أحد ولا تظلموا أحد واقنعوا برواتبكم وكان الشعب ينتظر وكل يسأل نفسه عن يوحنا هل هو المسيح؟ فأجاب يوحنا قال لهم أجمعين أنا أعمدكم بالماء ولكن يأتي من هو أقوى مني من لست أهلا لن أفك رباط حذائه إنه سيعمدكم في الروح والنار بيده المذرى ينقي بيدره فيجمع القمح في أهرائه وأما التبن فيحرقه بنار لا تطفأ وكان يعظ الشعب أقوال كثيرة غيرها فيبلغهم البشارة This is the Bible of the Lord. Thanks. Our preacher this morning is Father Kevin Cable. David and Carol and Sandy and I have gotten to know he and Jen, his wife, a couple of visits. When they were living here in Jerusalem, they would come visit. In fact, they'd come regularly on Saturdays for pizza, as it turns out, and we would talk. Now he's taken up his post to replanting St. Peter's Church in Jaffa. Kevin is a Jewish believer in Jesus who was called to the Anglican priesthood um, after a stint in the police. So he's lived in the most real of worlds, and therefore he comes with a, a view of God's word that makes it practical for all of us. So welcome him to Christ Church. Let's pray. Eternal God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to worship you, to hear your word, and to be inspired by the teaching of your word. As we reflect on your servant, John the Baptist, help us, Lord, in our own lives to make straight our paths and ever, ever pray for the day that you will return in power and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas is coming up, and for many young children, and I know when my children were young, the excitement is building up already. I just want to begin with a short story. It's of a little boy who uh, his parents put the presents under the tree a couple of weeks before Christmas. Now, like most little boys, eager for the day and for the gifts under the tree, he went over there and counted them. And he realized a dreadful truth, that his sister had nine presents, and he had only six. Now, those of you who've got children will already be thinking, yes, this is going to be a problem now, isn't it? So for the next week until Christmas Day, this little boy moaned and complained and pouted 
and drew tantrums about why his sister had got more presents than he had. And when the day came and he got his presents, not seeing the worth and the value of those gifts, he still moaned and still complained. The point is, his approach to Christmas, which is a time of giving and sharing, was wrong. He was focused on what he would get from it and not on the value of sharing gifts of others and blessing them as they receive those gifts. And this is what's going on in our passage in Luke this morning, is the approach when people are coming to John the Baptist as he's baptizing out in the Jordan. Last week in the readings uh, from Luke, we heard, um, certainly in Jaffa, the reading was a very famous uh, quote, which is, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Have you all heard that before? Yeah. Do you know that's the wrong translation? Look at Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is what it should say. And in fact, the complete Jewish Bible in their New Testament translation and a living Bible and several others get this right. It should say this, the voice of one crying, and it's God, God's voice, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Gives it a very different meaning, I think. And so this is where we find John this morning. Crowds of people, as we've heard, are coming out to see him. And it's important just to look at John briefly before we actually reflect on the text from Luke. John was an incredibly popular preacher. He was radical and he was direct. He didn't pull any punches. The Roman historian Josephus, himself uh, a Jewish man, said this of John. And Josephus was born uh, about AD 37, so not long after these events have taken place. This is what Josephus said about uh, John the Baptist. John was known to be a pious man, and he was bidding the Jews to come together for baptism. And when everybody turned to John, <clears throat> for they were profoundly stirred by what he said, Herod feared that John's so extensive influence over the people might lead to an uprising, for it seemed that people were likely to do anything he might counsel. This shows you the extent of how popular and indeed powerful John the Baptist was. People were listening to him. They were listening to what he had to say. Herod, this is Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great. Herod is worried about the influence of this man. Now, if you look at the account of uh, John's martyrdom when Herod kills him, there's several issues going on. But primarily, he is worried because John, true to character, has not just called the people to repent, he actually is calling Herod to repent. Why? because he is with his brother's wife, which was not allowed. And Herod didn't like being told when he was wrong. The extent of John's popularity is this. In southern Iraq today, there is, there is a group of people called the Mandeans. They amount to about 20 or 30,000 people today. And they are followers of John the Baptist, who they revere higher, in many senses, than Jesus. So even from the time of John to today, there have been people who continue to follow. 
John the Baptist, which shows you the extent and the impact John has. Well, what else can we say about John the Baptist? First of all, he is a sign for many. Now, if you're living in first century Israel at this time, you're living under Roman oppression. For many of the people, you're aware that those running the temple, the Sadducees, were corrupt. Many of the writers of the time record that the people on the street viewed the temple practices as, uh, in some senses, almost criminal. Some of the things going on, the extortion, the taxes. We also know that the Pharisees were starting to come to the fore. Now, Jesus himself didn't have a problem with what the Pharisees were saying. He calls them hypocrites because they're not doing what they're saying. There's a lot of people who think Jesus just outright condemns the Pharisees. He doesn't. He has a problem with the fact they're not doing what they're teaching. But they were coming to tell people to try and get closer to God, to try and live their lives more faithfully. But nonetheless, in the midst of all this going on, people are longing and they're hoping for the Messiah to come. Because your country is a mess. Your religious life is questionable with what's going on in Jerusalem and elsewhere. And so they're longing for the Messiah to come. But there's been no prophet for about 400 years, slightly more than that, in fact. No prophets. And so the belief we know from the writings of the rabbi of the period was this. When a prophet does come, it's going to be like a spring of water starting to bubble up from the earth. And following that spring of water will be a gush and a stream. Because when prophecy returns, the Messiah will follow and will follow soon. So can you see why people are so excited now to go out and hear this man, John the Baptist, who's preaching near the Jordan River and baptizing. His message was simply this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He was an end times prophet, as we'll look at in a moment. Some of his language was really quite harsh. Some of his language for some people would have been very frightening as well. Words like laying the axe to the roots of the tree, which we'll talk about in a moment, have a very clear picture of God's judgment. He led a very austere life. We're told he's clothed um, in camel hair, living on locusts and wild honey. He was not what the people were used to in any way from their religious leaders who often were dressed in their finery and surrounded by their entourage. He was there alone preaching God's word. And as I said earlier, he was certainly no crowd pleaser. John was not a minister, if you like, who sought to please those in his congregation. Now, without casting aspersions on any religious minister, I can understand as a parish priest the temptation at times to preach what your congregation want to hear certainly makes your life a lot easier if you do. Give them a nice, comfortable sermon. I'm sorry, folks, this morning, it's not going to be a comfortable sermon because, like John, I don't do that. I preach what the Word says, and if it's uncomfortable for us to hear, then we need to offer that to the Lord. John was uh, related to Jesus. Uh, His mother, Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, 
And we know, of course, that John, like Jesus, had been born as a result of God's direct intervention, a miraculous birth. So there are many parallels between John and Jesus. People now, though, have come, have come out to see him. And what does he say to this great crowd that have flocked from the towns and villages, we're told, even Jerusalem, to see and hear him? This is what he says in verse 7 of Luke 3. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Didn't I say a moment ago, John didn't pull his punches? How would you feel this morning if I called you all a brood of vipers, which you're not? But I'm sure you might have something to say to me afterwards. You brood of vipers. Now, John is not just addressing the whole crowd, and this is where we need to look at the Gospels together, because Matthew chapter 3 actually tells us that John specifically identifies a couple of people, or groups of people, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as being the recipients of this statement, you brood of vipers, but it is is intended for many who are there. Now, if you were attending and listening to John at this time, then you may be thinking several things when you heard this. First of all, vipers were snakes. And as snakes, uh, the belief was, of course, that uh, Satan, that great serpent, the snakes made you a servant uh, of the great serpent. But also we know from the writings of the period, and uh, if you're squeamish, I apologize, but this was the belief of the time for those who weren't familiar or seen vipers being born, was that the vipers would eat their way out of their mother's stomach when they were born, killing her in the process. And so this phrase, this idiom, brood of vipers, had come to mean a group of people who were selfish and who had their own interests at heart at the expense of anyone else, including family. It's an expression for untrustworthy people with only their own self-preservation and interests at heart. So it's quite a cutting remark John's made here. If you're standing there listening to this, you may well be thinking, hang on, I didn't come out for this. What is John essentially asking them? He's saying this, and I'm paraphrasing, why are you here? Why, Why have you come out? Why are you here? What's your motivation for being here? Who told you to flee the coming judgment that is coming? Why are you here? Because if you think being baptized is enough, then you're mistaken. And he's about to explain why. You see, I think those who came out to see John with a fear of escaping God's judgment, saw the baptism he offered as in many senses like an insurance policy. Or, if you prefer to use words that we're very familiar with at the moment, a vaccination against the coming judgment. You see, people at the time were all familiar with the concept of ritual washing. But those of you living in Jerusalem, you know that dotted all around this city are the mikvah, the ritual cleansing pools that the Jews would go into when they were um, commanded to do so. For women, there were specific times. 
There were specific times of ritual washing and cleansing as part of the forgiveness of sins. And also, actually, if someone converted to Judaism, they were immersed twice. They go down once, come up, and then the, the conversion is complete, and then they go down again and come up, and their first words are, Shema Israel, Adonai Lachenu Adonai Echad. It's quite a beautiful ceremony. It's also done, uh, this ritual washing, complete, completely naked, no jewelry, nothing. So they were familiar with the concept of being immersed, and that word Baptist just means immersion. But John is trying to make a point to them that if they're going to make their lives straight, if they're going to come into right relationship with God, then baptism is just the beginning of a process that is lifelong. It's not an insurance policy. Now, as a parish priest in the UK, I've met many people who've brought their children for baptism because in the UK, the Church of England will baptize infants. I know some people may disagree with that, but that's, that's the, the canon law of the church. You're not allowed, in fact, to refuse someone a baptism without very good reason. But I've met so many people who bring their child for baptism. And when you engage them with conversation and, and kind of talk about what is baptism for, what does it mean? I normally say to them, so tell me, why do you want your child baptized? And I can't tell you the number of times I've heard this answer or something similar. Well, if we're honest with you, if something happened to him, we want to be sure they go to heaven. Does that sound like an insurance policy to you? Okay. Okay, that's an interesting reason. So, you know, baptism is about a journey, entry into the church, and, you know, how would you feel about coming along and bringing up your child in the church, which is actually one of the things you need to promise as part of your baptism for your child? Well, Father Kevin, we're not really religious, but we'd still like it done just in case. Now, that is incredibly frustrating as a minister of the gospel, but it is very, very common in the UK to hear that approach. They see baptism as a one-off event where nothing else needs to be done. Have your inoculation in your arm and you're good to go. Whatever you may do in your future life doesn't matter because when you get to the pearly gates to see St. Peter, which is a very common understanding uh, certainly in the UK, what happens um, when you go to meet the Lord. It's okay, Lord, because, hang on, I've got my, my baptism certificate, my green pass, I can come in. Yeah, but what about all those things that you did wrong that you never repented of? No, no, it's okay, I was vaccinated against this. Now, I'm not uh, dismissing the importance of baptism, of course I'm not. But John's point is, if you're coming just for that and for that reason you have got the wrong understanding of what it's about because baptism should do what? John tells us in verses 8 and 9, he says this, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I just want to unpack those verses. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, baptism is the beginning, as I've said, of a journey of faith. A faith that that grows not just in here, but through the way we relate to our brothers and sisters and the world around us. But John is addressing something very particular here when he moves on to say, do not presume to call, uh, we, we say we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, he can raise up these stones to be children of Abraham. Now, why is that important? And why is John mentioning that to this crowd coming out? There's a really good reason he's doing that. It's interesting if you look at the text, actually, um, and you enjoy reading Hebrew, when he says uh, God could raise sons from these stones, it's a bit of Hebrew wordplay. It's banim ma'avanim. And uh, it's a good example of the kind of poetry of, of, of the Hebrew language. But the point is this. If you were here in this period of time, many Israelites believed that when God's judgment came, his wrath would be poured out on who? The Gentiles, but not the people of Israel. If you were an Israelite, if you were a faithful Jew, you were safe. You were fine because when God's judgment comes, it's not for us. Not as descendants of Abraham. This is going to pour out on the Gentiles. And in fairness, when you are occupied by the Romans, who do you want to see God's judgment poured out on? Because the source of many of your everyday problems are Rome. And then you've got Herod. Of course, Herod uh, was viewed by many as not a proper Jew because of his line of descent. But the belief was you would be safe from the judgment of God because you were an Israelite. You were Jewish. And so they kind of hark back to Abraham, a man, as we all know, of great faith, and said, it's okay because Abraham is our father. It's okay because I'm born of a Jewish mother. My great-great-grandfather was a Jew. They're relying on their family descent. That was a very common belief, that they were safe because they were Israelites. They're putting their inherited religion as a passport to salvation. Now, I'm going to come on back to this later on, because there is, there is an important point to make on this. But John is saying, if you think that just being a descendant of Abraham is enough after your baptism. God can take one of these stones and make them a child of Abraham. It's of no value in terms of your eternal salvation. That's quite hard to hear. We will come back to that later on. But John is making that point. Don't rely on your ethnic and your religious identity in terms of the coming judgment. And he says, to ram this point home, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Now that 
literally the translation there is it's laid to the root of the trees, not meaning that it's laying next to the root of the tree, as many people interpret this passage. It means it's started to chop. It's laid, bang, to the root of the tree. So again, if you're listening, this is becoming quite uncomfortable because the judgment is already about to begin or has begun. John's emphasis is clear. It's at hand. And then we hear about the trees being thrown into the fire. Fire, of course, seen uh, as several things in the scriptures, judgment, purification, and also the divine presence of God. But those listening have got the message of what's being said. Now, having heard all this, having heard, firstly, am I one of these brood of vipers? Secondly, hang on, my, 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 Israel, my, my faith as a, as a Jewish person, as an Israelite, isn't enough to escape the coming judgment, and that baptism isn't a divine insurance policy. Understandably, the crowd asked John, what should we do then? What should we do? It's a question, actually, that if you look at Luke and the book of Acts, you'll see this comes up several times in response to John, in response to Jesus' words. What should we do? Because they're taken aback. This is, this is making them think, hang on, the things we thought were right, we need to rethink. What should we do? If being Jewish is not enough, there must be something else. And so John answers them. I just want to quickly look at these from verse 11 onwards. First of all, he says, whoever has two shirts is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So it begins very simply. You know, living the Christian life is not rocket science. How to be a good Christian is not rocket science. So many people get caught up with ritual and a list of things they must do. Actually, what did uh, Jesus say about this? Love your neighbor as yourself. Begins with sharing. If you've got two tunics, two shirts, it was the garment that was worn directly onto the skin of a cloak over the top. If you've got two and someone needs one, share it with them. If you've got food and you know someone who's got none, share it with them. Which begins this theme that we see in these next few verses of John saying, live out your faith, not just in your mind, but in your actions and your conduct. He addresses now, though, the questions of two groups of people. And this is really interesting for us because these two groups of people are not the most popular amongst the people of Israel at this time. The first are the tax collectors who, we're told, came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said, Collect no more than you're authorized to do so. It's really interesting for me that they are there for several reasons. Because unless they came with their bodyguards, and many tax collectors at the time had bodyguards, they are putting themselves at huge risk amongst a group of people who've gone out to see John who probably, in that group, contained some people known as the Zealots. Have you heard of the Zealots? That's where we get our expression from. They're a zealot for this, or they have got a zeal for this. It means they're passionate. They were committed to driving out the Romans. They were nationalistic groups of Jews. And they were very, very prominent 
in the time of John the Baptist and Jesus. They may well be there. Now, if you are a tax collector, you are the lowest of the low. I'm sure you already know this. You are despised by others. Because how do you practice your profession? Well, firstly, the way the tax system worked was like this. Caesar would say to Herod, and I'm just going to make up these figures, the tax for this, this month, this year, is 200 shekels. And I want it without question. It's your job, Herod, as my administrator king in Judea to get that 200 shekels off of every person who needs to pay. What did Herod then do, having received that command? Or many kings in the Roman Empire, in fact, would say to their tax collectors something like this. So Caesar wants 300 shekels for tax for this this year. Can you see what's going to happen when this gets passed down to the tax collectors? They go to people and say, Almighty Caesar has asked for 350 shekels because they're going to have their cut as well. And it was accepted in Roman practice that they would do that. They would add something on. But actually, if you look at this and the writings of Roman historians, there was supposed to be a set limit that they could add on, but they often didn't. And if the tax collectors came to get your tax and you couldn't pay, well, they'd seize your land or they'd seize your assets If you were living out and farming, they would often seize animals that you used for farming. And if you didn't have anything of value, but you might and probably did have something, they were only too happy to seize your children. And your children would be taken away to pay your debt. And if you didn't give them up, they had no hesitation in using violence to secure what they wanted from you. So you can understand why the tax collectors would perhaps be taking a risk to come out and listen to John. Listen to what John says to them, though. He doesn't say stop being a tax collector. He says, do your job fairly. That's what you're to do. You're out working after your baptism is to do your job fairly and honestly. And this theme of doing things honestly and fairly as a way of living your life is carried on when John addresses the soldiers who've come to hear and to ask a question. What do these soldiers say to him? It's the same question, basically. What should we do? Now, I think, from my reading of Scripture, that it's likely these soldiers are probably the soldiers of Herod, of which there were many in this period of time. There may well have been Roman soldiers there, but for me, I think it's a bit of a stretch to say they were going out to hear John the Baptist. They may have gone out because they were monitoring the situation, but it's much more likely, I think, that Herod, who had a particular interest in John, would have sent his soldiers out to listen. For Rome at this point, John is just a preacher in the wilderness. He's not telling people not to pay tax, He's dunking them in water, whatever that means. Leave him out in the wilderness where he's not bothering us. But for Herod, this man is a thorn in his side. So these soldiers are there. What's the issue of the soldiers? Actually, whether they were Roman or working for Herod, they didn't get paid a great deal. And so they would engage in practices 
where they would help you protect your goods. Those of you familiar with the, uh, the, uh, the American mafia films, the protection rackets, where the gangsters turn up at your shop or your restaurant and say, wouldn't it be a shame if someone broke your window overnight or burnt your car? And then if you refuse to pay, they would do exactly that. They'd break your window. But we can offer you protection from anyone who, who might try that. They would extort you, basically. They would bully you into giving them money. And for many soldiers of this period, this was commonplace. But notice again, John doesn't say to the soldiers, stop being soldiers. He just says, what? Be satisfied with what you earn. Don't have to leave your profession. Be satisfied with what you earn. You know, I've known so many Christians over the years who come to faith in Christ as Messiah and Lord. And then they feel they must leave their job because perhaps it doesn't fit quite well into um, the Christian, Christian world or mindset. I've even met soldiers, actually, serving soldiers who thought, well, perhaps I should leave because, you know, the nature of being a soldier is I might have to kill someone. But I think one of the reasons John is saying don't leave this, and the same reason I would say that, is because if you come to faith and leave your profession, and you're, in, uh, you know, you're a soldier, as, as an example, who else are they going to hear the gospel from? Who else are they going to hear the gospel from if you, if you become something else which is not involved in that profession? So John is clear. You don't need to do that. You just need to change your ways. John's message of bearing fruits of repentance isn't a brain teaser, but it is very clear that as believers, our thoughts and faith internally should have an exterior expression. In fact, James, in the letter of James, is very, very clear that faith without works is dead. I'm going to read to you from the letter of James, chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faiths and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it is counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, 
so also faith apart from works is dead. John's message actually can be boiled down to three simple statements. Fruits of repentance. The works, if you like, to accompany that repentance. That return to God. Be prepared to share what you have with those in need. Be careful and mindful that your conduct, if you are in a position of authority over others, is just and exercised fairly. And lastly, to be content with what you have or what you earn. Now, having heard that message, for many listening, the next and most obvious question is, but John, who are you? Who is John? John, are you a prophet? John, are you the Messiah? Actually, it's quite understandable, as I said earlier, with the whole waiting for prophecy to resume and the need for these Romans to be driven out and the religious problems in the hierarchy of the country, that people had that right at the front of their minds. When's the Messiah coming? And John, are you the one? It's completely understandable. But John is very, very clear with them that he is not the Messiah. And he says this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mighty than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to cleanse his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, as I mentioned earlier, people are aware of this ritual immersion for the washing away of sins, for that symbolic being made clean. But John says, you will know when the Messiah comes because he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. What happened to the apostles when they were sat at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came? How did it come down upon them? Flames or tongues of fire. So they know that the Messiah, when that takes place at Pentecost, they know the Messiah has come because that immersion, that baptism in the Holy Spirit has happened. But there is a warning John also gives in his theme of judgment and the need to sort yourself out with God before this when he talks about the winnowing fork. Have any of you ever been to the Nazareth village? I know some of you have. Have you seen the winnowing fork? Have you seen how they use it? I'll give you a demonstration, okay? And I'm not the best actor, but let's hope it's clear. The winnowing fork is like a large pitchfork. And what you would do with this, and if you ever do go to Nazareth village and they're doing this, Take a video and share it with people because I think it really illustrates what's going on here. What you would do is you would gather in your harvest and then you would thrust the fork into it and you would throw it up in the air. And what would happen is the good grain, the valuable stuff, the stuff that has life and is useful, falls nicely to the floor. And the chaff, which is the kind of outer husk, the blades of, uh, of, of the plant, the bits that are no good for anything, they kind of blow off to the side. So you end up with the, the grain in front of you and surrounding you in the corners of the room, so to speak, is the chaff. Now, again, living in this period where many people in Israel were farmers, 
This, this lang- language is very, very clear what John is saying. You will be divided and separated. The Lord's winnowing fork works like this. If you are valuable, if you are part of his kingdom, if you will bring life to the kingdom of God and be a seed that brings life for others, then you'll be separated and you'll be used just for that. But if you're the chaff, if you're someone who rejects God, if you're somebody who doesn't sort out your life with God, who doesn't want a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you'll be treated like the chaff and you will be separated out. And where does the chaff end up? In the unquenchable fire. It's only fit for one thing to be burned. These are hard words. These are hard words. And for the people listening, it would have been difficult to hear because it wouldn't have fitted their expectation of what they thought was coming. The passage closes that final verse with the fact that John goes on to extol the good news to others who come to hear his message. And it is good news, folks, because no one needs to go into the chaff pile, do they? No one needs to go there. They may choose to go there, but they don't need to go there. They've got a choice to make. They've got a choice to make. And that's the message of the gospel, of reconciliation with God. God wants a relationship with you, with everyone. That personal relationship where you grow and flourish and are part of Jesus' kingdom here and now. Isn't that good news? You know, I've seen people over the years who've come to me and have confessed things. Now, in the Anglican Church, like the Roman Catholic Church, there's, there's something called confession. Now, I know for some people they may go, oh, I only confess to God, not to a priest. Of course we understand that. What is that process for? It's because for some people they need to hear the priest say, God forgives you of your sin. They know it's not the priest that is forgiving them. It's God. But they need to hear a physical voice that says, you are forgiven. And if you've ever seen somebody who has done something that for them, may not be for us, but for them, is so horrific, they have been chained down for years with this in the back of their minds, like a grip on their heart, when they hear they can be forgiven, it's like chains being smashed off. And this is when you see transformation in such a beautiful way. This is what John's preaching. This good news. You don't need to be on the wrong end of the winnowing fork. In closing then, three points we can draw from this passage. The first, many people came to John to get baptism because, as I said, they wanted that divine insurance policy. They thought it was a one-time thing. They come, they repent, they get baptized, that's it. It's good, I'm covered now. I've got the, uh, the green pass in my back pocket, so to speak. And they were coming because they're motivated by fear. 
That's why they want to have that baptism, because they want to escape the coming judgment. My friends, bringing someone to Christ through fear, for me, and if you disagree, talk to me afterwards, is the wrong approach. Shouldn't we be bringing people to Christ because they have a loving relationship with him where they're going to flourish and grow? Bringing them through fear also means, and again, I've seen this time and time again, people who come and hear a message about judgment and give their life to Christ, often in sometimes very, very um, dramatic ways, as soon as they believe they are saved and it doesn't matter what happens after that and they've been baptized, thank you very much, Lord, what do they fall back into doing? What they did before. Because in their minds I've been baptized, once saved, always saved. Heard that expression? I've heard it a lot over the years. Does that mean go and live your life how you please because you've been baptized and received the Lord? No, it doesn't. But fear is not a motivating factor that we should, we should cultivate to bring people to Christ. We want people to demonstrate their, their faith and come to Christ because of a relationship. Second of the three points, inherited salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but over the years, um, I've seen this a lot. And it's very similar to the people of John's age who are relying on their Jewishness their inherited uh, status as the people of Israel to think they don't need to do anything. They don't need to have a personal relationship with God or make their path straight in their lives or to live godly lives because it's okay. My family have always come to church. And in fact, my grandfather came to church. Did you know, Vicar, he actually built this church? And those chairs over there have always been in our family. Please don't sit in them on Sunday, you know, because although they're for everyone, they're, they're actually our chairs. I've met Christians over the years who honestly and sincerely believe they don't need to make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and King because, well, I was brought up in the church and my family has always been in it. You see, it's the same thing about calling Abraham our father. Because I'm from a Christian family, I don't need to do anything. My friends, that is not the message John was preaching. It's not the message we should be preaching. That's not to say that those things aren't important and of value. And if you've grown up in a Christian household, amen. I wish I'd had that experience. It would have made my life a lot easier in many respects. But... Even if you do grow up in that household, at some point, you've got to make a choice for yourself about what you believe and how Jesus Christ will transform your life. Third and finally, as James alludes to, says in his letter and as John is alluding to here about the whole thing about works, your conduct echoing the fact that you uh, you have repented. You've received your baptism and repented and moved forward. Ours is not an intellectual faith where we just meditate on scriptures or we, we sit and pray all day long, but actually we don't do anything with our faith. You know, it's nothing wrong 
if you want to go to the Bible study on Wednesdays and study the Bible and reflect on that and, and learn loads about the scriptures and, you know, the background to our faith and all these exciting things that's great to learn. But if you're just keeping that in here and it's not in here coming out in your service to others, then your faith is just an intellectual one. And actually, loving our neighbor, feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, and ministering to the sick are the natural expressions of that inward faith changing us as we move forward as members of the kingdom of God. Because John's message is the same message for us, is that baptism begins the journey where we enter into Jesus' kingdom. And what does King Jesus want us to do? He wants us to follow the priorities that are important to him and that his priorities should be our priorities. And to do that, faith can't just be in here, important as it is to feel the presence of the Lord and to grow in our own understanding. It should be that we are a light to others, that they then too can come to know Jesus as Messiah and Lord. I'll just close by saying Christmas is almost upon us, and I'm sure here, like many churches across the world, you'll have people coming in. It might be the only time in the year they come in and hear the gospel. Do you know what's the most powerful message in my opinion, is that when they see your lives are the lives of people who have been transformed, that actually it doesn't matter what's set up here, it's what they see in you that counts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for John's words and message, and we pray, Father, that we would always strive to have a faith that is lived in the service of you as Lord and King, and in the service of our neighbours. Bless us, Lord, as we approach this time of Christmas, reflecting on your birth and gift to the world. And we pray especially for those who will come into the doors of this church, that they might be touched by your message of grace, reconciliation, and peace. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.